The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching text comes from Psalm 55. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy that taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Family, good to be back up here with you. Um, if we haven't met before, my name is Garrison. I'm a pastor in training here, excited for tonight. If you have a Bible, uh, you can open up to Psalm 55. That's where we'll be tonight. Um, I will pray for us, and then we will hop in. Father God, I thank you that uh, our family gets to, gets to gather. Um, God, that you have uh, saved us, um, that you have made us a people. Lord, I thank you that uh, we've, we've gotten to take the last six weeks so far and talk about what it means to be uh, emotionally healthy individually as a people. I pray that you would continue to use uh, what we're talking about to, to help us to grow into more, more of your likeness, to love you more, to love one another more. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, quick uh, recap for us, uh, if, if you're just hopping in with us. We're in the middle of our summer series we're calling Emotionally Healthy Church. We wanted to carve out some space uh, to talk about what it means to be an emotionally healthy disciple of Jesus. So uh, we started with this definition, right? In week one, we've come back to it a couple times. We said emotional health is having the right emotion at the right time with the right amount for the right duration 
because of the right reason, namely love. And what we just did the last four weeks is we built out a framework of how we actually get there. We said you got to go up. If you want to be emotionally healthy, you have to go up. You have to take your emotions to God. You got to go in. You have to examine your heart, your beliefs, your desires, your thoughts. We've got to go back. We've got to look at our past. We've got to look at our wounds, our family of origin. And lastly, like we talked about last week, we've got to go out, not only uh, inviting community in, uh, but actually being present enough and honest enough and vulnerable for them to actually be able to help us and point out our blind spots. So this framework is, is going to serve the next five weeks as we shift away from the framework towards actually just talking about specific emotions week by week. Now, with that being said, we know that human emotions are really complex. We know that we can't, we don't have enough time to parse out every single thing about every single emotion. So we picked the ones we thought would be most helpful to our church. So as we, we parse through these emotions we got to be on the same page about two specific things that are going to dictate how we're preaching, how we're thinking about these specific motions. Uh, First one, uh, and this is a recap, is every emotion, regardless of how it's provoked, is a reflection of our relationship with God. Every emotion, regardless of how it's provoked, is a reflection of our relationship with God. As we've said earlier in this series, the reason we feel the things that we feel isn't just determined by our circumstances or the thing that caused it. Those things definitely provoke and contribute to the emotional response, but if you do any type of digging, you'll quickly see there's more to it than that. It comes back to what we love, what we worship, what we believe. It's determined by our relationship with God. Secondly, uh, and this is, this is a new concept for us, is that there are righteous and unrighteous versions of these emotions. Emotions have righteous and unrighteous versions, which I think is probably a foreign category for us. Because at least for me, whenever I'm categorizing any emotion, it's a bad one or a good one. It's a good emotion or bad one, a positive or a negative emotion. So uh, we look at things like shame. That's a bad emotion. We look at joy. That's a good emotion. Sadness. That's a bad one. And we just do this with the whole list. But this is a miss. It's an oversimplification because it's only viewing our emotions in light of how comfortable we are when we feel them. And there's more to it than that because emotions are both righteous and unrighteous because they were created by God. As image bearers, we were given emotions by God and they can be unrighteous because we're sinful and fallen. So what we've got to see whenever we feel anything is that it can be righteous, it can be unrighteous, it can be a mix of both. And I think this is hugely helpful because it reshapes, one, how we think about how we feel, how we think about how we feel, because some of us don't really understand what's going on when we feel certain things. And a second part of that is some of us beat ourselves up over what we're feeling. So we feel things like shame and fear or whatever, and we're mad at ourselves about it. Second thing it helps with is it it shapes what we do with what we feel. So some of us don't really know what to do about what we feel because we don't know why we're feeling it. It's hopefully going to create some new framework and categories as you think about what you're feeling. So with that framework, we're going to start the specific emotions by looking at fear. I'm going to talk about fear and anxiety. So let me define fear for us so we're on the same page. 
Um, this quote is from Dan Allender. He wrote a book called The Cry of the Soul. It's hugely helpful, would recommend it to you. It's formed a lot of how we're talking about this stuff. He says, fear is our response to uncertainty about our resources in the face of danger. When we are assaulted by a force that overwhelms us and compels us to face that we are helpless and out of control. Fear is provoked when the threat of danger, whether it be physical or relational, exposes our inability to preserve what we most deeply cherish. I think this is hugely helpful for us. Uh, maybe a more simple way to put it is fear is our emotional response to uncertainty. Fear is our emotional response to uncertainty. Now, this can show up a bunch of ways. There's a ton of ways that we could talk about fear and anxiety, and I'm trying to talk about all of it. It can be a sort of simmering type of worry or fear that you feel on a day-to-day -day basis, maybe nervousness, angst. It could be intense anxiety. It's sort of like a spectrum. It really fluctuates. Sometimes it's more free-floating. I don't know if you've ever felt this or asked somebody, hey, are you anxious? And they're like, yes. And then you're like, about what? And they're like, I don't know can just be sort of free-floating. I know I'm anxious, I'm not sure what it's about, or it can be the opposite. We can be intimately aware that I am anxious about this thing, and it's controlling what I'm thinking about all day. It could be the boss, the job, your spouse, your kids. I'm talking about all of it, big or small. Now, I think with fear, we totally see this as a bad thing. Bad emotion, we don't like it very much, Categorize it as a negative emotion. We say it's bad because it makes us uncomfortable. Rightly, and that might be an understatement. For some of us, fear and anxiety, it makes our lives unmanageable. Like we don't know what to do. We don't even know where to start. And that, that's, that's true for a lot of us, right? Fear and anxiety do and will have a troubling impact on anyone that does feel it. But we, we shouldn't just push it away as a bad thing. There's more to it than that. Fear can be really useful. Fear can be incredibly useful because fear is crucial to functioning in a fallen world. Fear is crucial to functioning in a fallen world because fear is a warning light. That's what it is at face value. Before you get into all the specifics, fear is a warning light. It shows us that danger is near. It helps us take precautions. It tells us maybe you should avoid this person or this situation to get away from pain or danger. Now, one of the difficult parts about this is trying to figure out if you're living in reality or not. That's a difficult part about it. But if we're talking just face value of what fear is, it's a warning light for danger. Uh, a dumb way to talk about it that I think is really helpful is just this. I think we all have something like this. But for me, I'm scared of sharks. I'm scared of sharks. And I'm not crazy for thinking that. Not. In fact, you people that go body surfing in the murky Carolina waters, you are the problem. You're the crazy ones. I'm not. I'm not crazy. Now, I can go crazy with that, right? If I'm like, I'm never going to swim in the ocean. I'm never going to look at water because sharks. I'm not going to watch Shark Week. I can't sleep. That would be too far. But at face value, I should be afraid of sharks. You should too. Why? Because they can hurt you. They can. Get out of the murky water. Go in the murky water. Just don't go too far out. The fear reminds me of a truth. Dangerous animals can hurt me. That's not a crazy thought. Fear tells us something true. Fear tells us we might be in danger, that there's something at risk. We might lose something important to us. And I think that's a helpful redemptive category for what fear might be in your life, which is what we're going to see tonight in Psalm 55. 
is that fear and anxiety are telling us three truths. Fear and anxiety are telling us three truths. So if you've got a Bible, we're finally at Psalm 55. You can read or you can follow along behind me. This is verse 1. It says, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me, and in my anger, in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. First truth that fear tells us is that we live in a fallen and broken world. We live in a fallen and broken world. So we we don't know the exact context of what's going on in David's life in in this psalm. It doesn't really precisely line up one for one with any one incident in his life. There's a lot of overlap with a bunch of things, but really precisely we don't know. What we do know is that there's some sort of uprising, some sort of rebellion happening here, and it's not being led by some foreign country or an enemy of Israel. It's being led by one of David's friends, close friend, as he states later in the psalm, and David is crushed. He's crushed. This friend has betrayed him, causing massive amounts of chaos and destruction, and he's angry about it. He's begging for God to intervene, but he's more than just angry. He's terrified. He's scared. He's afraid. He's feeling this deep sense of fear and terror over what's going on. He says, the horrors of death, the horror overwhelms me. Terrors of death have fallen on me. He's afraid because he's seen the ugliness of the world. Seeing chaos, destruction, war, senseless death, and violence, it doesn't make any sense to him, and he's terrified about it. Is David living in unreality? No, he's not. He's being exposed to reality. Bad things can and will happen in this world. The worst-case scenarios, they do happen. They can happen. Because Satan, sin, and death have a hold on the world. We live in a world broken by sin. The the perfect world that God created, it's not that way anymore. And neither are we. What that means is that there's real dangers in the world. There's real threats in the world. So it isn't crazy that you're afraid of something happening to you or your loved ones, your kids, because we live in a broken world. Isn't crazy that you're afraid of financial struggle or getting fired, losing your job, economic hardship, because we live in a fallen and broken world. And to say otherwise is a lie, and that is terrifying. We've all got to deal with it. There's no escape from that. And fear is pulling back the curtain. It's lifting your head out of the sand and saying, yeah, there are really bad things that can happen. We do live in a fallen and broken world where all is not right. Fear reminds us of this. That's our first truth. We'll skip down to verse 9. We'll see our second one. David writes, Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on, on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, 
a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is their dwelling place and in their heart. This is the second truth that fear tells us, is that good things are worth caring about. Good things are worth caring about. So it's almost like insults being added to injury. David's looking down at the city. He's already seen all this, the war, the rebellion, and now he's seeing violence, he's seeing fraud, he's seeing theft happening in the marketplace. He sees his friend, who's not just like, you know, walking around, they barely know each other. They've taken counsel together, they worshiped God together, and it's all falling apart. Um, David as king is in charge of the government, military operations, money. He's the ultimate authority in Israel, but to him it's more than just a job. Because if you know his story at all, you know that David is literally plucked out of obscurity by God and then just set up as the second king of Israel. David was more than just this king that became king because uh, it was his birthright or by the common means of succession. He was literally called by God. It's a high calling. It matters to him. So David's looking out at this nation and it's in turmoil. And this is the second reason he's afraid. Because the thing that he's been called to, the thing that he cares most about, the people that he's called to rule over, it's all falling apart. And he's scared about that. He's not living in unreality. No. He's being reminded that he has good things in his life that he's called to lead, to shepherd, to be in charge of, and to love. He's got good things in his life. I think this is huge for us again, because it reminds us, it tells us that you're not necessarily an immature person if you're scared of bad things happening to the things and the people you love. It's hugely freeing. It just means that you've got a warning light going off. Fear is telling you you've got people and things that you love. Fear reminds us that good things are worth caring about. We'll pick up our last one, skip back to verse 6. Third and last thing that fear tells us. They were right to, and I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Third truth that fear tells us is that we are not in control. We're not in control. So David prays right here. He says, if I, if I could fix it, I would have already. And I can't. So I want to run away. But I can't do that either. I'm stuck. This is what uh, being out of control tells us and shows us. This is exactly the response. He wants to run. There's nothing left for him to do. Super relatable. Because we all fear what we can't control. We all fear what we can't control. It's a difficult part of reality uh, because we all know this. We all know that we can't control everything, that we're not in control, but we all struggle to accept it. We all hate the idea of being helpless, but fear reminds us that we are. Uh, I think a normal human pattern for, uh, for I would say for m most people, if not everyone, is that we set up our lives in a way that just buries our head in the sand, that distracts us from this, that pushes it as far away as possible. So we, we do things like uh, we plan a trip, we finish a project, and that makes us feel powerful, competent. It makes us feel like we're autonomous, like I can do things. 
I can do whatever I want whenever I want. Or uh, we do good at work, we do a good job on the project, and we feel really stable, we feel really confident that we're going to be okay, or we see a certain number in the bank account, and we can sleep better at night. Meanwhile, all of these things can go away in a moment. We can lose them all just like that. We are all one phone call away from our whole life being changed. We are one phone call with our boss away from our whole world being turned upside down. We're one doctor's visit away from everything being changed. And we do not like to think about that. We do not like to think about our whole lives could be undone in just a moment. Fear reminds us of that reality. That isn't an unreality. That's what's true. So our world is broken which means uh, that there's good things we care about and we have little to no control over what happens to them. And and this is why so much of uh, the ways that we try to deal with our anxiety are are so unhelpful. So uh, we do things like, um, oh, you're anxious. It's going to be okay, though. Like, don't think about that. It's not, that's not going to happen. Like, don't, or we do it the Christian way. Hey, if we just trust God, it's going to be all right. And I do this all the time because, to be honest, when somebody else is really anxious, it makes me anxious. And I just want to kind of like, can, can I fix you real fast? Or I want to do that to myself. Like, I'm really uncomfortable feeling this way, so I'm just going to give myself a platitude and try to move on. But if you've ever felt any type of anxiety and somebody tells you, hey, it's going to be okay. Hey, uh, that's not going to happen. Don't think about that. Trust God because it's going to be fine. What's your response? It's almost always the same. How do you know? How do you know? Which you could, uh, you could dismiss that and say, that's just a really anxious question to ask. In reality, it's a really informed question to ask because nobody knows. We don't know. We have no idea what will happen. God uh, can be trusted and should be trusted, but that does not mean that bad things won't happen. That does not mean that your life's going to play out the way that you want it to. And living in a sinful and broken world is a constant reminder of that. That we're not in control. That, yeah, we got a lot of things that we love and we care about, but we're not in control of what happens to them. We can try all we want. We can bury it. We can distract from it, but it's not going to work. Uh, here's, Here's what happens with it, though, is that we see the three truths, on a good day, we're reminded of them. Maybe we, we see them pretty clearly, and we, we don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with the fact that we live in a broken world, and I have no control, and anything's on the table. That's terrifying to me. What happens is it just clogs out any type of way that we could see through it. It, it totally bogs down our spiritual life, and it blocks out the fourth truth blocks out a fourth and deeper truth that we'll see in verse 16 that David finds. Look back, it reads this way, but I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul and safety from the battle that I wage for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from old, Selah. Because they do not change and do not fear God, cast your burden on the Lord, 
and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved, but you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. David, who is just talking about how terrified he is, turns and finds this. It's the fourth truth, that God is good and in control. God is good and in control. It's the fourth truth. So for many of us, we, we try to deal with fear by mitigating it, distracting from it, maybe trying to get a platitude, make ourselves feel a little bit better, detaching. It doesn't work because what we have to do is we fight fear not by getting away from the fear, but by finding a better fear, by finding a greater fear, having the fear of God. We fight fear by having a greater fear, the fear of God. So fear is natural. It's a natural response to living in a fallen world. It's a, it's a warning light. But what happens is it takes hold, and it does this. It takes hold of the problem, it takes hold of the circumstance, and it elevates it, and then it takes hold of who God is, and it de-elevates it. And this problem clouds out anything of who God is or what he can do in your life. The problem is not the fear. The problem is that we need a bigger view of God. We try to fight the anxiety, but in truth, we need to see him more clearly. That's how we deal with the fear. The fear of God does not eliminate your fear. Not necessarily. It subordinates it. It puts it in its proper place. Um, Ed Welch, uh, he wrote a book called When People Are Big and God is Small. Um, he talks about going out west and seeing uh, the large redwood trees. And he says, whenever you see a redwood tree, uh, every other tree by comparison doesn't even, it doesn't even compare. They're, they're dwarfed. What he's saying is not that trees don't exist anymore. Like, oh, those are the only trees that exist. Nah, he's not saying that. For some of us, our problems are big. Our fears are large. We don't just brush them away or bury them. It's that we look at God. We see him for who he is. We get a massive view of God. Like we see this in the Bible, right? When you think of, of David, it is kind of his first story. He gets plucked out of being a shepherd, shows up to the battlefield. What's happening is the Israelites are terrified of the Philistines. There's Goliath. They're all huge. They're, they're not going to win. They're terrified. David shows up. He looks across the battlefield and says, who are these people to defy the living God? which seems ridiculous. It's kind of a baller response, right? Or you see, uh, you see Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, he crumbles before God because he sees him for who he is and all this splendor. He realizes the crushing weight of his sin. He can't stand before him. He can't even speak. That's the fear of the Lord. So yeah, you might be afraid. You got real problems. There are real scary things that can happen, but look at who God is. He is greater so uh, the fear of the Lord is this biblical phrase that shows up a bunch, especially in the Proverbs. And I think it's a biblical truth that's been really lost, especially in our culture and time. So a lot of people like to talk about the fear of the Lord. It's like, oh, uh, yeah, you're just kind of in awe. You respect him. But like, you don't have to be like afraid, afraid, because he's our friend. Like God's our friend, right? Those things are true. But the stakes are low. The truth is getting gutted. We say God's our friend, so we don't really need to be afraid of him, but there's so much more than that. Because God is the creator of all things, because he's going to judge all things, sustain all things, we can be comforted by that, but we also have to be 
terrified by it. We're not going to be able to fully comprehend it. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that God is so far beyond that. He doesn't, we can't understand him and his power and magnitude. So yes, that's comforting, that's good. That means we can come to him, but it's also scary because he's not just your friend. He is your friend. He's more than that. Jesus talks about this type of fear in the Gospel of Luke. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's a huge statement. Because ultimately, what we're all afraid of is dying. (laughs) Of, of death and suffering. And Jesus is saying, yeah, don't be afraid of that. In light of who God is, he can do a lot more than that. It's reor- reorienting the fear. It's not saying, hey, you, you shouldn't be afraid of death. It's saying, hey, there's much more to it than that. Look at who God is. It subordinates the fear. Dan Allender writes this again. He says, to fear God is to know that a, at a moment of existence without him is hell. We are to fear the loss of existence. We are to fear the loss of the very essence of humanness as we walk on the edge of rebellion. He's saying, you got to see who God is, and that's terrifying. And then you see who you are, and that's even more terrifying because we're deserving of his wrath. It says, further, to fear God is to be stunned speechless that the weight of his fury and rejection crushed his son, not us. Awe is not appreciation. It is stone-cold terror at his sense of otherness. The fear of the Lord is to see God correctly. And all of his attributes, we see that he's other, completely different. We see his perfection, his omnipotence. We see that our lives could not exist without him. They would cease to exist if he willed it. And when, when we see that, That's the way we deal with our fear. That's the way it gets subordinated. Yes, the fear is still real, but it gets put back into the reality of who God is. That that God is the one that ultimately determines anything that comes into your life. If the worst case happens, it is God's will for your life. He determines everything that's going to happen based off of his own purposes, and we're not going to understand that, and that should make us tremble and worship him. But there's more to it than that. What's even more crazy and comprehensible is that the same fear that can, that should crush us, it doesn't because of the gospel. We, we deserve all of God's greatness, all of his uh, ferocity, his wrath to rain down on us, but Jesus entered in and took it in our place. I love that quote uh, by Alan where he says, the weight of his fury and rejection crushed the sun. We deserve that. We deserve to be crushed. It's a stunning reality. It doesn't make any sense. All we can do is stand in awe that God, who is terrifying and other, made a way for us to be in relationship with him. And with all of our fears, even when we totally miss it, or like my, my, my fear about X, Y, and Z trumps God, God still says, you're mine. Big and small. Still made a way. That's the hope of the gospel. That our fears of today and tomorrow will all be gone because Jesus went to the cross. 
went to the cross to make eternal relationship with the Father possible. It's a terrifying reality that we don't deserve that, that we could have taken his wrath, we deserved it, and Jesus took it in our place. He did it, clearing a path for us. We are his forever. So if you're feeling like the world is falling apart, if you're feeling like your fear is so big, like you just want to run away, be in control, you got to see that you're his, that he's not going to let you go. The worst case can happen, but God is with you. He loves you. The promise is not that bad things won't happen. It's that God is with you when it does and is with you forever. And because of that, we can trust him today. So I want to end with a little application. Um, my, my hope coming out of, of this sermon is that, uh, not that you wouldn't be afraid, but that when you are afraid, you wouldn't be stuck doing any type of mental gymnastics, like what do I do with this? Is this reality? Is this not? How do I get away? How do I deal with this? Or try to escape? But that you'd be able to let your fears be subordinated by the fear of God. So I just want to spend some time doing some very practical ways that we can cultivate a fear of God. Practical ways we can cultivate the fear of God. Got three of them for us. First one is just the Sabbath. The Sabbath. We've talked about this so many times. We talk about it a lot because it's majorly helpful and it's integral to our lives. One of the default ways that we deal with our anxiety is by trying to control it, by trying to uh, work, perform, by doing more. When we're uncertain about the future, the answer is I got to do more, I got to try harder, I got to advance so I feel better. So what the Sabbath does is it's a practical way for us to put all that down for a day to say, I'm not going to try to do that. I'm going to let God be in control. Very practical. It's going to be hard. <laughs> it's going to be uncomfortable at times, maybe even painful. But as we take a day to cease, we remember that God never stops working. So Sabbath, first one. We've got a lot of resources on that on our website, a lot of sermons, some practical guides on how to do it. I encourage you to check that out. Second one, We've got to meditate on Scripture. We've got to open our Bibles. We've got to get into God's Word. We have to read it. We have to study it. We have to memorize it. So when anxiety does come, when fear does come, we can reorient our hearts back to what is actually true and what is actually reality. So when you're anxious about a meeting or about something that you're about to step into, a calendar appointment, you can remember Isaiah 41.10, fear not for God is with you. When you're anxious about temptation, about your sin, giving over to it. You can remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He'll provide a way out. When you're anxious about a decision in the future, Psalm 32, 8, God will instruct us and teach us the way we should go. Do we got we to gotta memorize Scripture so that it's on our hearts as life comes at us? But we also got to get some Bible in our heads about the greatness of God, about how big He is, about how powerful He is. Um, there's a lot of places you can do this. I'll just give you one that I'm currently doing is just reading through Exodus. It's a great book in the Bible to look at the magnitude, the sovereignty of God. God knew where the Israelites were going. <laughs> like he knew what was going to happen. And he leads them through as they sin, as they stumble, as they seem like we're never going to make it out of Egypt. And yet he powerfully moves over and over and over again. God leads, uh, uh, he leads a million people 
over a million people out of slavery. That's crazy. He parts uh, the Red Sea. He leads them through. They want to go back. He continues to be faithful to them. I'd encourage you to start there. There's a ton of other places you can do that. But we have to get in God's Word. We've got to study it. We've got to memorize it. We've got to read it constantly. Sabbath, meditate on Scripture, third one, last one. We've got to remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness. I'll reread this last part in Psalm 55. It says, cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. So very often in David's life, we see him uh, referring back to what God has already done in his life. That's why he can shift like he does in these psalms, right? You see it a lot uh, throughout the psalms where it's like uh, part one is uh, my complaint, everything is bad, everything is awful. And then you land, you see him land with God is good. God is faithful. How can he do that? He remembers who God is. He remembers what God has already done in his life. It's the idea of remembering the Lord, which comes up a a lot in the scriptures. In fact, uh, God himself commands his people to do this very often because he knows our tendency is to forget, is to doubt. So we've got to, as individual Christians, as the body, we've got to look back. What has God done in your life? What's God done in your life specifically? Maybe you're like, "Uh, I don't know. It's really bad right now. I don't really see much. Here's here's the beautiful thing about being a Christian. If you're a Christian, you always have something. Because God saved you. Because God saved you. So it doesn't matter if your life is falling apart. You can always look back and say, God was so faithful to me. He was so kind to me. He saved me. And it doesn't have to be a miraculous, these big salvation stories. It's just, God, you you placed me in a Christian family. I got to grow up in the ways of, of, of you. That's your kindness, Lord. We get to do that over and over again. We've got to remember what he has done. Uh, There's there's a big piece of this, um, even in this psalm, right, where he's saying things like, God will not let the righteous stumble. We know that bad things do happen to the righteous, though. And that's, that's kind of a hard thing to hold in tension. And some of us really need to wrestle with that. We see it throughout the scriptures, David's life, see it in uh, all of the disciples, that faithful Christians still have to deal with really hard things. Sometimes, even if you're a Christian, your life can end abruptly, badly, and that doesn't mean that God isn't good. Uh, Me and Tim uh, were on our pastor's retreat this last week, and uh, we were listening to a sermon, doing a session, and something stuck out to both of us. Um, The teacher said, towards the end of the sermon, he said, uh, in Christ, you're okay. In Christ, you're okay. Which may sound a little contradictory to what I said earlier about like, you're going to be fine. This isn't about just you're going to be fine in the moment. Your circumstances may play out really badly and be very scary and still in Christ, you're going to be okay. Because this isn't our only life. (laughs) We see life after death. That's the hope of the gospel. In Christ, you are okay. You're not in control. We live in a sinful, broken world. Bad things can and may happen. In Christ, we're okay. Take comfort in that. You can look past this broken world and see God's faithfulness in the past and the present and where we're going in the future. 
which is uh, what we celebrate every week when we uh, take communion. That Jesus made a way for us to be saved now and for forever. Life eternal with God. Um, On the night he was betrayed, Jesus uh, took bread, he took wine, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. As you're together, take, eat, and remember what I've done for you. Church, you can take the bread and eat. Likewise, he took wine, in our case, grape juice, and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Take and drink. Family, remember God's faithfulness in your life, even when things are hard right now, even when things are really scary right now. God is faithful, he is kind, he has made a way for you to be right with him forever in Christ. Let me pray for us. God, we confess, I confess, um, that many times uh, my fears uh, dwarf you, that I completely miss who you are, what you've done, what you've promised to do, because it's just scary. This world is scary. But God, we know who you are. We know that we can ultimately trust you uh, because of the cross. Because Jesus, you, you made a way for us to be right with God forever. God, help us uh, to trust you. Help us to rest in you. We, we can continually and constantly stumble and fall. We're so anxious, and yet, God, you say we need not be anxious for anything. God, apart from your spirit, there's no way. There's no way for that to happen. So God, change our hearts. Help us as we, uh, we try to do the practicals. We try to Sabbath. We try to put our work down. We try to open your word. Look at what you have already done throughout time and in our lives. God, change our hearts. Help us to believe. Lord, we need you to subordinate our fears and that we would see you clearly. As great, as loving, as kind, powerful and sovereign over our lives. God, we thank you that you're trustworthy, good, and true. Pray it all in your name, Jesus. Amen.